0: coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. We're extending your file system's usefulness with extended attributes. We take a look at just what they are and how they might be useful. Plus, we take a behind-the-scenes look at the operations of a major spam bot and check in with Bruce Schneier on the state of internet privacy. Plus, we've got your fantastic feedback a-rockin' roundup and so much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly Systems Network and Administration Podcast. This is episode 335, broadcast in front of a live IRC and Discord audience. This episode is brought to you by our three excellent sponsors: Ting, DigitalOcean, and IX Systems. My name is Wes, and joining me this week, it's the one and only, the man who's just an image this week. We've got some ongoing technical difficulties, but that won't stop him from presenting you with all the facts you know and love. That's right, it's Dan.
1: Welcome to the show, Dan. Hello, Wes. There is no here. truth to the there is no truth to the rumor that I've run out of t-shirts.
0: No, don't worry. That's not the reason that we can't that, see that's, you.
1: That's not the reason. Well, in what's fact, new in your world besides plenty of t-shirts? Um I'm about to reboot that server that I swapped all the t- three terabyte drives out for five nice. terabyte drives. And I started uh, a thread on Reddit's home lab to talk about why, come up with reasons why it won't boot. And one of the reasons I mentioned was that it's now five terabyte drives. And not all drives present 512-byte sectors. Some drives may be 4K, but they emulate 512-bytes. Right. okay, yes. And some BIOSes cannot handle 4K-only sectors. It's written right into the BIOS. And I'm now trying to track down whether or not that is strictly a BIOS issue or whether it's a bootloader issue of the OS.
0: I see. So if there's anything you can do about it, or or without having to get a new motherboard...
1: Well, um, right. The, the way I got around it on on one server that I'm working with is I installed the OS on the two SSDs in that box. And that's always an option. Uh, Just right, toss yeah. a couple of SSDs in. <laughs>
0: hey, that's never a
1: bad thing, right? Mm. Never.
0: Excellent. Okay.
1: And, and what else? Oh, I use the textual OSX uh, IRC client and just upgraded to 7.0.2, and it was crashing. And the dev said, ah, turn off iCloud syncing. And since then, it hasn't crashed. So you're back on IRC, looking. at Which you. I'm back on IRC, and it's stable again. Excellent. That's good to hear.
0: Okay, well, I guess we can start, start the top of the show today. We've got a great show coming up, lots of stuff to talk about. But for something that uh, I don't use very much, I don't know about you, Dan, extended file... Attributes.
1: Well, I, I've never used it directly that I know of. I know I've used it indirectly because um, I think it's io cage, a jail manager. The the right. previous version was a shell based jail. The new one is a, a Python based jail manager. But I know the previous one and possibly the new one both use uh, extended <coughs> pardon extended file attributes on ZFS to set the attributes of that particular jail. And I know that there's a ZFS snap uh, utility, which does the same thing. You set the attributes on the file, on the data set, and that determines how the software treats that data set, how often it snaps it, how long it keeps it, stuff like that. But that's not what we're talking about in general. What we're talking about in general is an attribute of the file system that is available to users. Uh, why might that be interesting to you? Well, that's what we're going to find out about. Now, ha- have you used um, extended file attributes? You,
0: you know, I think yes, but but it's been very occasionally. I think I actually, you're you're right. I did I did play with that a little bit when I was playing with uh, IO Cage, I think I used it like ten years ago when I was setting up. I, you know, I can't even remember. It's been so long.
1: Yeah. Well I've never given it much thought but then someone posted this article or, or brought my attention to this article and I started looking at it and while I don't have a direct need for it now I figured that if we went over this article and said this is what you can do with it someone might say oh my god that's exactly what I need that's a great point yeah definitely sometimes
0: you don't know that you know you don't know the tools that are right in front of you someone points it out and
1: there you go yep well on that thought, I div- there's a feature of the FreshPorts website which depends exact entirely uh, upon the error uh, error doc uh, when an Apache gets a 404. Oh, right. Okay. Yes. It it redirects to this uh, error handling routine. It says, "Hey, listen, did you type in something sort of wrong?" Let me redirect you over here, which which may be what you're looking for. And if it's not, here's a here's a list of items which are similar to what you're looking for. And that's what php.net does. And I got that idea while listening to a, a lecture by Rasmus and said, oh, my God, that's what I need. So, anyway, that's an aside. Now, back on... <coughs> pardon me, under extended file attributes. I got really bad allergies today. Ah, I'm sorry to hear that. It'll get better. Yes, winter is coming. mm Mm-hmm. It is. But season eight is a long way away. Indeed. So, the name of this title, the name of this article on linuxmag.com is Extended File Attributes Rock. Now, they sort of go into how... The number, uh, the amount of data that we have is growing tremendously, but the the size of the file is not necessarily growing at the same rate. Meaning, the number of files is growing rapidly, but the amount of data that we're storing in each file isn't really changing much. It's sort of still staying small. So, how do we manage all of this data and files? And while the answer to that question is complex, one place we can start is with extended file attributes. So. What they're getting at here is we've got a lot more data. How can we use extended file attributes to to manage that data? So, they, they go back to this year's fast Usenex conference and file, file system and storage technologies. Now, by this year, they mean 2011. That's when this article is from. So, they're talking about a paper which talk about file systems, they did some studies from 2000 to 2010. The median file size isn't changing. The average file size is larger and the average file system capacity tripled in those 10 years. So the average file system is bigger. What they mean by the median file size hasn't changed, what that means is that if you were to sort all of the files in your file system According to size, the one in the middle of the list is the same now as it was in 2010. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, that's, just...
0: that's an interesting that's interesting to know. But the, but but the average file size is larger. So I
1: guess yeah, yes. So there are there are more files, but they're larger. Uh, it sort of, sort of says like every one of us. Has less than the ha, has more than the average number of eyes in the population mm, mm-hmm. Because if you have two, you're above average
0: exactly. Fun with math on today's
1: text snap. Yes, we do stats here. I think I actually read that somewhere recently on Reddit, something like that. So now, One of the keys to data management is being able to monitor the state of your data, which usually means monitoring the following metadata. Fortunately, POSIX POSIX gives us some standard metadata for our files, such as the following, file ownership, UID and GID. Almost everyone who admins a box knows about user ID and group ID. This is just general use it, UNIX type stuff. File permissions, such as world, group and user, um, usually that's sort of the other way around. It, it's owner, group, and other is what I usually see that sorted as. Um, a time, C time, M time. Most systems I know turn off A time, which is access time. C time is when it was created, and M time is when it was modified. And then, of course, file size and file, file name. And is it a file or is it a directory? So all of that stuff is easily readily available to you. Now, what most people don't realize is there's actually a mechanism for adding your own metadata, like extending the metadata that we just covered. Say what? This is called... What? What? Yes. This is called extended file attributes. In Linux, many file systems support it, such as ext234, jfx, xfs, blah, blah, blah. That's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. And some of the file systems have restrictions on those extended file attributes, such as the amount of data that can be added, but they do allow for the addition of user-controlled metadata. So on Linux, there are four namespaces for this data. So there's user, trusted security, and system. And this article concentrates only on the user namespace because it has no restrictions with regard to naming or contents. The system namespace could be used for adding metadata control by root. So let the users manage their own metadata, but if you as a systems administrator is doing this and want to rely on this metadata and make sure that it's accurate, then use the um, system namespace. Don't use the username safe space, leave that to the users. Oh, and while I think of it, um, not all backup and copy tools Will preserve this extended name, uh, extended metadata. Yeah, that's a good uh, point. Extended metadata. So if you're doing, uh, I think I recall seeing uh, CPIO mentioned. Now, I don't know if that's been fixed since because this is a 2011 article. But if you rely upon this metadata, make sure it's still there after you copy it off and copy it back on or back it up. Make sure your backup tool preserves it. Otherwise, when you go and restore, well, you're screwed. Exactly. So, the user attributes are meant to be used by the user and any application run by that user. The user namespace attributes are protected by the normal user permission settings on the file. Meaning if you can set it, anyone else who can touch the file can set it as well. If you have right permissions on the file, generally I think you can set an extended attribute. If you have read permission, you can read that attribute. To give you an idea of what you can do for names for the extended file attributes for this namespace, here are some ideas. User.checksum.nb5, user.checksum.shaw256. Why would you bother setting the SHA-256 when you can just calculate it? Time. That's the only thing I can think of time. If you have a 10 gig file, Set the SHA two fifty six if if that's something that you need all the time.
0: Yeah, that actually sounds pretty handy, especially if you have to go, yeah, if you're you know have some dumb process that's running
1: every mm-hmm. every so mm-hmm. often. I like yeah. that idea. Uh user dot original author. So you've got say a document and the current owner is J Doe, but the original author was Fubar. Bar. Alright. User.application, what application uses this file? User.project, user.comment. Comment is a really good idea. Now, what tools do we have for extending file attributes? So they they go through several different tools here, and mainly it's mainly setting and getting those extended attributes and they talk about the ATR package that that comes with most distributions. Some OS have it built into the OS, but generally there's an ATR package. And there's also a lib ATR package as well. This is specific to Linux. Now, there are other bits here where they talk about how you do it on other systems. Let's see here. Let me jump over to the Wikipedia article because that had some interesting stuff in it as well just a comparison of the the different things and here it is so on aix they supported the get ea command so the get ea set ea ea presumably meaning extended attributes that would make sense freebsd 5 and later it it's ex atr extended attribute uh, under under linux it's generally uh, ATR, get FATR, set FATR. Those are all from the ATR package. OSX even has this. Uh, and they generally use, um, they're not mentioning the commands here. Oh, OS2 had it. Anyone still using OS2? I want to hear from you. I would OS2 is yeah. pretty cool. That would be great. Solaris has it, uh, Windows NT has it. Now, this is not an exhaustive list, but it's just a list. You know, I definitely have encountered it uh,
0: back in the days on Mac OSX. Uh, let's look there. It looks like it's from the command line. It's xatter uh, yeah. on OSX. But, uh, you know, there they use resource forks as well. And I, I remember having issues with a lot of oh, a lot yes. of the BSD user land commands that they've, you know, they use there, not having support for those. So I think in particular, instead of using rsync, I had to use, or instead of, Something I had to use the ditto command to make sure that those all got copied correctly when I was doing drive imaging and then other things.
1: What's a ditto command? Is that like a copy IO or?
0: Yeah, let's see. I'm, it's been like 10 years since
1: I've done that. The, the tools that you go back and look at when you no longer need them. I, I, I know I've talked about. Um... Yeah, here we go. Ditto
0: yep. is a slightly more advanced form of CP, but it only it preserves ownership attributes and permissions as hmm. well as file resource forks and file and folder metadata.
1: So there you go. Huh. So I'll, I'll, I'll run through some of the commands that they've got here for an example. So they say, let's create a file called test.txt and put some content in it called the quick... Brown Fox. So they've done that. And now let's add some extended attributes to this file. So what they run is set FATR minus N user.comment minus V. This is a comment test.txt. So basically it's set FATR minus N for the attribute that you're setting and then minus V for the content that you're setting and the file name. So, this command sets the extended file attribute to the name user.comment. That's a really bad sentence. The minus V option is the value of the attribute followed by that value. And the final option of the command is the name of the file. So, what do you do to get that back? You use get F A T R and back comes file colon test.txt and user.comment. You can do a, I think you can do a, um, a file, I uh, get fatter minus q. I know I tried this on FreeBSD the other day, and it just brings back the the results. Oh no, sorry. Um, if you just do, I read this wrong. Get get ATR file name will list all the extended attributes on that file. But if you want to get a particular value. You do get FATR minus N, the name of the attribute, and then the file, and it'll bring that back. And that's that get FATR minus QN, I'm sure will not give you the extra meta- metadata. In other words, it'll just give you the value instead of the key equals value.
0: Oh, yeah, here. that seems pretty handy for scripting and
1: other purposes. Oh, right. yeah, you need that sort of stuff. I, I know that's ZFS. Well, hold on. Have we gone a show yet without mentioning ZFS? I'm are not people, sure. Are people getting sick of hearing about ZFS? I mean, they we, must be the people not using ZFS.
0: We talk about ButterFS too, and and some other file systems. Maybe we can do okay. something about XFS in the future. Yeah, but if so, I mean, please let us know. It's just hard because it's so good.
1: Let us know. So. There's a whole bunch of stuff you can do in here. as I, as I mentioned, you, you could say, okay, this directory doesn't get backed up. You could set that right on that directory. Um, this file ignore it. do not back it up. I know that some file systems have an attribute for for not backing up. No dump attribute, I think is mm. what it, what it is called. Mm-hmm. but that goes back to the days of where you would dump a whole disk. Um, yeah. So,
0: yeah, one use that comes to my mind is like I wonder, you know, you could set a series of of attributes that showed like provenance as a file was passed between various services, maybe Mm -hmm. showing that they've been processed Mm -hmm. and by what process. Mm -hmm,
1: mm
0: -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, you're right. Like I definitely can start thinking of some things. It's it's so handy that it lives, you know, with the file on the file system. So if it's going to be, you know, as long as you're taking care to copy it to another file system that supports it with a process that. You know, will preserve that information. You, you don't have to have an extra file. You don't have to have other things. It'll just be right there.
1: What you just said reminds me of email headers.
0: <laughs> Tell me more.
1: Well, as an email goes from A to B, the headers in that email are oh, yeah, right. not appended to, but prefixed to. So you receive the email and then... At the start of the email, you say, hey, I received this message from here at this time. And that's just how the email structure goes on. But, and you couldn't really store that in a, in a file attribute, but it is the same idea. Yeah, exactly. Interesting.
0: Hmm. Huh. Well, extended attributes, uh, it seems like a lot of fun. I'd be curious to hear from our audience if anyone has any use cases they use, you know, in their day-to-day life, at work, yep. at home. Mm-hmm. And if you come up with something clever because of it, let us know about that too.
1: Yeah, especially if what we've said here has given you an oh my God moment and you rushed off to do something with it. Let us know what that is. Because Dan hope so. That's what we're here for. Huh, exactly.
0: Anything else you want to add? No, thank you. Okay, well then, let's jump into our first sponsor tonight. That's our friends over at IX Systems. Head on over to ixsystems.com slash techstamp. There you will find the definitive guide for buying hardware for open source software. How do you know it's definitive? It's because it's from IX. They've been doing this a long time. They've seen, you know, dot-com bubbles come and go, and they've been here throughout it. They've got a huge number of great partnerships, especially with people like Intel with their incredible Intel processors. So you know you're getting the best bang for your buck in whatever you buy from IX. Head to their website. You'll see, you know, right right here, you can just see some of the companies IX works for. You know, people like NOAA, UC Berkeley, Tumblr, Hitachi, Splunk, Groupon, LinkedIn, uh, the, the U.S. government, and governments all around the world. That's another way you can know that they're serious about what, what they do. And what they do is provide amazing custom hardware and storage solutions that are really first rate in the whole industry. Whether you need, you know, an entirely custom new server or storage array for your growing business or... You just want to get serious about home backups. IX Systems is the place to look. Start out looking at the FreeNAS Mini. You just click, click, learn more. Uh, it'll take you to a page all about it. You can go buy it on Amazon, especially if you're a Prime member and you you know need some fast storage, or you can order it and configure it and buy it right on the IX website. If the web, you know, buying things on the web isn't for you, or you just want to, you know, be sure you're getting exactly the right configuration, that's another way IX Systems stands out. They've got a great staff of super talented sales. Engineers, emphasis on the engineer. There, they're they're really you know they know exactly what's going on. They've worked with great companies, and they're prepared to be your partner with white glove service helping you to understand your problem, helping to make sure that your solution is the custom solution that that you deserve and that matches your problem and will solve it in the most cost-effective, efficient way. So whether you need, you know, particular hardware, a motherboard that'll make sure it'll fit this number of extension cards and and will have this amount of upgradability or this many sockets, doesn't matter, iX has done it, they've seen it, they've built it. And if not, they're going to be excited too because, hey, this is a lot of fun and they're experts in their field. They've also got, you know, they're they're also like community members. That's another thing. You don't have to you don't have to worry that this is some company that that no one's heard of or that they're out of the blue. No, they're they're they are at all the conferences, you can find them, they've got social media presence and they've got a great blog. They've always got stuff going on over at the blog, whether it's you know, new server releases, like iX Systems has leashed new servers built on the new Intel Xeon scalable processors. Hey, that sounds great. Or they're talking about some conference that's upcoming or that they've been to, or another cool open source project that they're helping helping or that they're trying to highlight. That's another way iX is different than just about every other provider. So if you're looking for some new hardware, you're looking for a crazy amount of storage, or you're just looking for some technical guidance, Check out ixsystems.com. Go to ixsystems.com/slash-techsnap. Take a look at that white paper. You know, give it to someone. Whether you know whether you're looking to buy new hardware or someone else in your company or life is, let them know about IX. And thank you to IX for sponsoring this here Tech Snap program. All right, so moving on,
1: what do you have for us next today? Speaking of IX Systems, uh, they were at uh vm world is a vm world yeah i think a so. big it's co- on right now one of my co-workers there and oh. I, co-workers that was there and he stopped by and uh snagged t-shirts for us all
0: it seems like there's a lot going on there there you know like there new is, a, aws partnerships and then google's yep. looking at doing
1: the same yep good days for vmware so anyway back yes we've got other Sorry. things to talk about internet privacy uh-oh Now, one of the first guys that I started reading about when it came to security was, uh, and I always mangle his name, I'm sorry, is Bruce Schneier. And Bruce does a lot of really good stuff. Um, A a lot of very interesting um, approach to security and not just computer security, but physical security. And one of his big terms that he uses often is security theater. But in this post... It's the Harvard Gazette that has gone and talked to him, gone and talked to him about internet privacy. And I'll, I'll just start off by reading the first three paragraphs uh, of this article, because you know, we talk about privacy a lot on here, and it is more important than people think. It's not just, oh, I don't have anything to hide. The point is, yes, you do. You probably just aren't aware of why it should be hidden and history has shown that if this information is out there, it can and will be misused. Exactly. <clears throat> so, in the Internet era, era, consumers seem increasingly resigned to giving up fundamental aspects of their privacy for convenience in using their phones and computers, and have grudgingly accepted that being monitored by corporations and even governments is just a fact of modern life. In fact, Internet users in the United States have far fewer privacy protections than those in other countries. In April, Congress voted to allow Internet service providers to collect and sell their customers' data browsing history. By contrast, the European Union hit Google this summer with a $2.7 billion antitrust fine. To assess the internet landscape, the Gazette interviewed cybersecurity expert Bruce Schneier, a fellow with the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Security and the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard Kennedy School. Schneier talked about government and corporate surveillance and about what concerned users can do to protect their privacy. So... Back in here, security is always a compromise between convenience and protection. And people are finding it convenient to do certain things with their phone and are willing to give up right. the privacy because of that. Um, we, it used to be it, anyone that wants to surveil someone really wants to know where that person is at all times. And at the moment, our cell phones do that. Not directly, but...
0: But in many ways, indirectly and and also
1: sometimes directly. (laughs) And a lot of phones have GPS units in it. And I'm not sure if it's completely standard practice, but the cell phone towers know where you are. They can triangulate It, it. It may not be automatic, but it can be done using the information from the various cell phone tower logs. Anyway pardon so after the Gazette talks about Edward Snowden's revelations of, of regarding the NSA's mass surveillance operations and believe it or not that came out four years ago it seems a lot more recent than that it but it's really been four does. years That's since Snowden released his information That's a long time. And I don't think we've
0: come as far as uh, we might have hoped back then.
1: He addresses that very topic. Schneier says Snowden's revelations made people aware of what was happening, but resulted in very little change. The US Freedom Act resulted in some minor changes in one particular government data collection program. The NSA's data collection hasn't changed. That's a very important point. It has not changed. The laws limiting what the NSA can do haven't changed. Let that sink in, folks. It's pretty the much technology, the same. Yeah. The technology that permits them to do it hasn't changed. So basically, even though we know they're doing it, nothing has changed. Nothing. So... The Gazette asks, should consumers be alarmed by this? And Schneier says, hell yes, not in those words, but he says, people should be alarmed, both as consumers and citizens. But today, what we might care about is very dependent upon what is in the news at the moment, and right now, surveillance is not in the news. It was not an issue in the 2016 election, and by and large, isn't something that legislators are willing to make a stand on, Snowden told us, Told his story, Congress passed a new law, and people moved on. So stuck here in the middle of the article is some low tech tips to prevent to protect your online privacy. Don't post identifying details into public sites such as tagging photos online. Okay, because basically when you tag photos on Facebook, it lets people oh that's what Dan looks like. Not that I keep it a secret, but you know, right. don't That's use what search. what
0: Dan looks like. That's where Dan yep. was, possibly yep. at this time. Yep, yep. And maybe, yep. we maybe need some sort of more, you know, at some point maybe some cultural understanding about the you know, consent around tagging or the at least the,
1: yep. the potential
0: problems. Mm-hmm.
1: Use search engines that don't track or store personal information, mm-hmm. like DuckDuckGo, just a few miles n- north of where I am now. Is that right? Neat. Yep. They they're in Malvern, PA, which oh. is, I could hop in my car, be there in half an hour. Excellent. They are good. I like them. Turn location, excuse me. Turn location services off on your phone when not needed. Organize against surveillance. That is a very important thing. Um, it wasn't too long ago that that we talked about politicians saying. How many letters do they need from someone in order to take notice of a topic? And it was two. Two letters on a topic from different people are enough for a politician to take notice. Because one, they can just dismiss as a nutcase. Two means that there's at least two other constituents that are interested in it. And the vast majority of their constituents do not email so if 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 you're in a particular i want to say riding because that's a canadian term if you're in a particular electoral area electoral area <laughs> i like that get, get you and your friend to write to the politician and they will take notice of that
0: yeah and it, i mean what can it hurt right you might as well try yeah.
1: don't email email does not have the same significance as a written letter yeah that's for sure so what's the next High tech, low tech tip, place a sticker over your computer's camera. I don't have that. But my my podcast camera does have a little flap
0: oh, that yeah. I can I like down. when that I like oh, when that top
1: option's top. there. That, that's right there. Oh, and um work puts out these little uh slide things. You can stick it to I've you, seen to your those. laptop. Those are really and neat. it just it's a little shutter that slides back and forth so you can open it and close it. Yeah.
0: It just seems, you know, like it's, well, well, it may seem trivial, and in some cases probably is, it's just nice to have, you know, much like hardware switches on a device or other Mm -hmm. things, it's Mm -hmm. nice to be able to, like, opt in to using Mm -hmm. something. I know when I'm going to enable my camera, it's not a big Mm -hmm. deal to just slide the slide the slide.
1: My Cisco phone sitting here has a little shutter that I can close over the lens. It's like a twist thing on the the camera. I'm like, twist it shut, and it's physically blocked. The camera is still active, but it's it can't see anything. Beautiful. <clears throat> Item number six don't use cloud backup. If you do, uh, this is my aside. If you do, encrypt it. Uh, yeah, because once you've the, encrypted it,
0: you're fine. Right. That's the natural aside. But that maybe doesn't yeah. qualify as low tech, unfortunately. No.
1: Um, I agree. Don't use Google Calendar and don't use webmail. configure your browser to delete cookies. Okay, yeah. Nice. All right.
0: Yeah, that one's... I know I've seen some options like delete cookies at the time, you know, like when you close your browser and your session, Mm -hmm. and that that can Mm -hmm. be pretty handy. Mm
1: -hmm. Again, that's convenience. Exactly. Cookies are convenient. So... Now we get into, you know, can we legislate this? And the answer is my words, hell yes. (laughs) Right now, the answer is basically anything goes. I'm quoting uh, Bruce now. It wasn't always this way. In the 1970s, Congress passed a law to make a particular form of subliminal advertising illegal because it was believed to be morally wrong. So, pause here. If society feels that something is morally wrong, they legislate it so if we as a group believe that it is morally wrong to sell our person to collect and distribute and or sell our personal information we can legislate that because we as a group believe it's important right we, get, we com- get to
0: set the playground here for, for how this yes should work.
1: yes we elect the politicians we tell them what we want that doesn't always work out very well, does it?
0: No, it it doesn't always. But but no. you're right, and I no. mean, obviously, it has to be a dialogue, and you know, there's there's probably yes. a, a happy medium to be found in a compromise. But but that, it, that dialogue needs to be taking place, and especially, you know, uh, consent and transparency
1: definitely mm-hmm. need to be involved. Mm-hmm. When it comes to transparency, the Google trans—is it the Google Transparency Project? Uh, um, I forget the name of the project, but basically, I think it was done by. Fitzpatrick, you can download all of your data and ask for it. Can I have all my data, please? Like all your photos, all your emails, all that stuff. They give you give it to you in a nice, tidy, terrible.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. So, Google does have that. You're right. All right.
1: So, back to the advertising. That advertising technique. Uh, subliminal advertising is child's play compared to the kind of personalized manipulation that companies do today. The legal question is whether this kind of cyber manipulation is an unfair, deceptive business project practice, pardon. And if so, can the federal trade commission step in and prohibit a lot of these practices? Personally, I believe they can. It's within their pur- purview. Um, anyway, Uh, Do you remember Facebook uh, did a little bit of manipulation of news feeds to see how people reacted, like they would supply someone with more good news or more less news or something like that? Yes, I do remember that. Uh, I know someone, a friend of mine was very personally upset by that because um, they felt that this, if perhaps you were like depressed or suicidal, That could be just enough to push you over the edge by seeing that, you know, I'm unhappy, all my friends are unhappy, this is terrible. So that kind of psychological manipulation, I thought, yeah, anyway.
0: Right, and without you, you know, like, okay, well, if you've signed up for it, that's a different matter. But just that's not what the normal expectation of the service that you use is, right? I, I don't think consumers understand that. You know, by a lot of times like Facebook can do what they want with their feeds. You kind of trust that like they have an algorithm designed to show me relevant information that's not distorted in some way.
1: Um, look up the um, look up Pola, P-O-L-A. It is something called the principle of least astonishment, and it's a human computer in interface uh, operation, basically if a necessary feature has a high astonishment factor, it may be necessary to redesign the feature. So that um, I'm trying to give an example here of of where when you upgrade your hard drive, it uh, encrypts it and doesn't give you the key. Right. What? I mean, that's astonishing. Why would it do that? So basically, tools should do what you expect and only what you expect. And they shouldn't have unintended consequences and i think that applies to also using apps and you know if i say that i want to see these friends first i should be seeing everything they post first but a lot of uh, uh, social media will manipulate it to show you what they want you to see as opposed to well why are you doing this this isn't fair
0: yeah definitely i like that i like that that I think applying that principle makes a a good deal of sense. That's a good way to put it that I think a lot of people could understand.
1: No, uh, thank you. Now, back to what Bruce has to say. Europe has more stringent privacy regulations than the United States. In general, Americans tend to mistrust government and trust corporations. Europeans tend to trust government and mistrust corporations. The result is that there are more controls over government surveillance in the U.S. than in Europe. On the other hand, Europe constrains its corporations to a much greater degree than the U.S. does. U.S. law has a hands-off way of treating Internet companies. Computerized systems, for example, are exempt from many normal product liability laws. This was originally done out of the fear of stifling innovation. I wonder if European law is slightly different when it comes to product liability for software. Yeah, it would be interesting to hear about that. <clears throat> Bruce then said, you know, he has asked, what do you do to protect your privacy online? You know, he carries a cell phone, he shops online, he banks online, he uses credit cards, and he has airline frequent flyer accounts. Perhaps the weirdest thing about my internet behavior is I'm not on any social media platforms. That might make me a freak, but honestly, it's good for my productivity. Huh. Whereas That's fair. I, I tend to use social media for technical reasons, like here's this problem I'm trying to solve. How do I fix it?
0: Right, that's I mean, at what the end of, of the day, of it can be it. a very you know useful way to uh, you know share ideas and helpful and actually interact with people. That that's the social aspect of it. But that's somewhat different than the um, you know like marketing or or yeah, lifestyle or I don't even know what to call. it. But you know, there's there's that's a different way to use it than a lot of people do.
1: We're abnormal. <laughs> yes, indeed. We really are. It, 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 most of the people listening to this podcast are not your average person.
0: And that's just one more reason. We that,
1: have. That, that's not a bad thing. No, not at all. That's not a bad thing at all. It's good to not be average. Uh, so um, what else do you do to pr- protect your privacy online? I've come to the conclusion that email is fundamentally insecurable. If you want to have a secure conversation on Online, if I want to have a secure conversation online, sorry. And I, I use an encrypted most of us do. I use an encrypted chat application like Signal. By and large, email security is out of our control. For example, I don't use Gmail because I don't want Google having all of my email. But the last time I checked, Google has half my email because you all use Gmail. Yep. Yep. Um This harkens back to what we talked about on the previous show about uh, N plus one encryption protocol.
0: Yeah, N plus one sec.
1: Yes, that one. So I'm hoping that comes out soon. Yeah,
0: so uh, see episode 334 for that one. Thank you.
1: One sentence in this whole article gives you a lot to think about. No one ever lies to a search engine. I, I, what you're putting, what you're putting in there, is what you're interested in. I want more information on this. Oh, this person is interested in that. Let's just make a note. Oh, I want to know about this too. Oh, wow! Look, they're interested in this too. Okay, put a tick in that column as well. So, keep that in mind.
0: Yeah, I like what they. You know how they. Phrase that, and then right after there, it you know, also points out that Google knows you, you know, even better because Google has perfect memory in a way that people don't. So not only do they, you know, are they able to build an assessment on it, but they can have the yep. whole history that is amenable to better analysis at any time.
1: Mm-hmm. So to, to finish, to finish this review, we'll just I'll, I'll read the last paragraph of what Bruce has to say. Opting out doesn't work. It's nonsense to tell people not to carry a credit card or not to have an email address. And buyer beware is putting too much onus on the individual. People don't test their food for pathogens or their airlines for safety. The government does it. But the government has failed in protecting consumers from internet companies and social media giants. But this will come around. The only effective way to control big applications is through big government. Oops. My hope is that technologies also get involved in the political process, in government, in think tanks, universities, and so on. That's where the real change will happen. I tend to be short-term pessimistic and long-term optimistic. I don't think this will do society in. This is not the first time we've seen technological changes that threaten to undermine society, and it won't be the last.
0: That is a little bit optimistic. I appreciate that. That's often a note we need here on TechSnap.
1: Oh, yeah. I think, yeah, I'm the same way. Short term, uh -uh. it's not going to improve. But long term, I think it will. Because more and more people are going to become aware of how important this is. Europe is, you know, I want to say years ahead of us, but yardsticks ahead of us in terms of privacy control.
0: Yeah, definitely. While you're doing that, I just remember I've seen a couple. like uh, There's there's plugins or other applications that will try to generate some fake data to try to obfuscate some of what you're doing in effect, you know, lie to Google. I don't know if this one in particular... Here's just one I found called Noisy. Um, introducing Noisy. Noisy is a browser plugin that creates meaningless web data. Digital noise. It visits and navigates around websites from within your browser, leaving misleading digital footprints around the internet. I don't know if it actually does uh, fake searches or not, but... It's just maybe one thing people can consider that might help.
1: You're talking about noisy reminds me of something I was reading yesterday. Uh, um, ISPs can tell when you're sleeping, uh, when yeah. you get up, uh, when you leave for work, all that sort of stuff. And they that can be determined basically by the amount of data that leaves your house at what times of the day and where it goes to. Yeah,
0: the people sitting example, in the knock surely just see that, right, in the rhythms yeah. on the graphs on the wall.
1: So when you go to bed, there's a lot more data going to your um, sleep monitoring app, for example. Um, And the way around this is to have a steady stream of data, maybe 40k per second. That's not a lot of data. But just have a steady stream of data going all the time so everything else gets lost into the background,
0: yeah, and then especially if you maybe you're already, you know, you uh, you tuned into episode three thirty four, and you set up a uh, VPN gateway at your house as well. Mm-hmm. You know, the combining those two things would work pretty nicely, I think.
1: Just have a constant flow of crap going over it, exactly. And they can see the data is going there, data is coming back, but it just has has to be enough to have a lot of data going in. And that reminds me of what um, e- encryption used to be done. Uh, encryption used to be a uh, uh, this is an encryption machine that my father worked on or was a tech for. He installed it. So you you would have a machine, a sending machine and a receiving machine at each, each location. And at the beginning of the shift or the day, you would insert a paper card into this machine. And that paper card was essentially the seed for random noise that would be sent over the line for the entire shift. Now, that's... Uh, my interpretation is is that the same card was used at both ends, which meant at the other end they knew exactly what the noise was, would remove that from the incoming signal, and anything else you got was your actual encrypted message or your unencrypted message. So anyone eavesdropping on it, there would be constant noise all day long, and all you do is you encode your message into the middle of that noise, and then at the other end. You have your message, and nobody knows that a message even went by, let alone what it was. That's clever. I like that. It is. Incredibly. Anyway, enough of my antidotes. anecdotes.
0: Any uh, takeaways you want to have for that uh, very interesting article before we move uh, on?
1: People have got to get involved with telling their politicians that they don't like the amount of data that's available.
0: Yeah. And we got to, you know, we need to, you know, you're right that it's a, in some ways, it's like a, it's a moral philosophical issue. So it's something we need to attack at the cultural level as well. And, you know, communicate this to people in your life. Parents need to teach it to children. Other things, you know, that this is, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a human right. It's a, it's a fundamental thing for a free society. We need to have privacy and have a, a clear and open discussion about what that means. Yes. So do that, get out there and keep watching textnet all right, so if you care about that, you probably also care about freedom of choice, especially when it comes to your wireless service. Head on over to Ting if that's you, techsnap.ting.com. There you'll find a smarter way to do mobile. Why Why is it smarter? Well, just to tease you, just at first, maybe it's smarter because the average Ting bill is just $23 per line per month. Yeah, that's right. And when you go to techsnap.ting.com, you'll get a $25 service credit, which will likely pay for more than your first month of service how does this work is this some sort of crazy internet magic well i mean yes Uh, but the way it works is because ting's different ting's mobile that makes sense ting is pay for what you use head on over to their rates page there you'll find a little bit more about how that works you can just play around see what it would be like lines start at six dollars a month yeah that's it you have a phone you have six dollars a month boom that phone it's on ting now then you just pay for what you use so if you don't use any minutes That's $0 a month. If you don't use any text messages, because, I mean, that's just plain text. Are you crazy? Also $0 a month. And then it's just however much data you use. You know, maybe you uh, use a lot, $26. Maybe you don't use hardly any because you're on Wi-Fi all the time. That's $16 a month. So the price, uh, you know, a meal out, something like that. It's a whole different bar game. It's not $130 a month. Plus, there's no there's no two-year contracts. You don't have to try to estimate how much data you might need and play that terrible game of trying to buy just amount that you use most of it but still have enough flex for the months where you go over, maybe you're traveling. Ting doesn't make you do that. Ting doesn't want you to feel like a child. This is This is wireless service for adults and rational people. You pay for what you use. You need to use more, just use more. You'll pay for it. And that's fine. That makes it simpler. And you make up for that in the months where you don't use very much, because if you don't use much, you don't pay much. That's the magic of Ting. And don't worry, they've got everything you've come to expect. Voicemail, three-way calling, and the best feature for me, tethering. Yeah, that's included. There's no separate magic other bucket of data. There's no extra fees for that. It's just included because Ting makes sense. They have both GSM and CDMA. You get to choose between those, whichever's better in your area. You can bring your own device. They've got an easy page over here a BYOD. You can check out if your IMEI will work on Ting. I bet you it will. And if you need a new device, head on over to their store. they got a ton of great phones from the latest and greatest Android and iOS things. You can go check out your coverage. Look at that. Samsung Galaxy S8 apple iphone 7 plus they've also got a large amount of bargain phones so maybe you want a backup phone you need a phone for a kid that you know hey maybe they're gonna break it or you want to get a MiFi home home phone connect 3 cdma MiFi from 97 bucks look at the zte warp elite brand new 89 that's hard to beat and when you know you're gonna save a bunch of money on ting hard to beat that too so techsnap.ting Com. Thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Okay, thanks, Ting. Now to our final story in today's main segment. We're back with our dear friend, Mr. Troy Hunt.
1: I like Troy. Me too. I do. I do. I'd buy him a beer. So, a few weeks back, we went, uh, we, we talked about Troy Hunt's huge deal. Uh, database that he had released, uh, 309, I think it was, he, he basically released hashes of all the passwords that he had collected from some of the dumps. And I think it was 300 and some million rows. I've got it in a database here somewhere. Um, but this just dwarfs everything that he had before. So this is just from yesterday, which is probably the day before yesterday, Australia time. But last week, I was contacted by someone alerting me to the presence of a spam list, a big one. That's a bit of a relative term, though, because whilst I've uploaded big spam lists into Have I Been Pwned, H-I-B-P, before, the largest to date has been a mere 393 million records and belonged to River City Media. This, the one I'm writing about today is 711 million records, which makes it the single largest set of data I've ever loaded into HIBP. For a sense of scale, that's almost one address for in, every single man, woman, and child in all of Europe. This blog post explains everything I know about it. That's a lot.
0: Yeah, that's so, definitely a lot. That's a crazy big number. Yep,
1: it is. It's, it's just—it's hard. Any to fathom. website would be proud to have that many users. Exactly. So, what's in this data? There's, there's two. So, I, I really should give credit to the chap that got in touch with them. Uh, ben Cow, B E N K O W, is the uh, chap who contacted Troy. And Troy says he's done some really interesting malware and spam bot analysis in the past. And he had a read of some of the stuff. And one of the things to keep in mind about this dump is there's two important classes of data you need to understand. Email addresses. That's it. Just masses and masses of email addresses used to deliver spam to In some cases, a single file may contain tens or even hundreds of millions of email addresses. That's just ridiculous. Now, uh, for further reading, uh, have a look at uh, bsdly.com. I think that's at bsdly.com. Is that it? Yes, that's the one. It actually redirects to bsdly.net. this is Peter Henston's uh, webpage. Uh, he loves FreeBSD, does a lot of great stuff on it, uh, Does wrote a book about PF. He also knows a hell of a lot about spam. Uh, there's a page there that you can go there and read for advice on what to do. And he talks about trap lists and uh, email harvesting and stuff like that. If people aren't aware, email... Every email has a unique identifier. And generally, it's sort of of the form of some random number, often date related, ampersand the domain that's selling it, that, that is sending it. Sorry, not selling. So it looks a lot like an email address. And on freshports.org, you can see a lot of that stuff because everything on freshports is generated from an email. Oh, Which right. comes from a which comes from a commit list, so I think I actually doctored some of the initial ones because when FreshPorts was first set up, it didn't record the message IDs because they weren't important to me at the time. So when I started recording message IDs, I had to put a value in for all the previous, uh, for all the field, for all the rows in the database that didn't have that value. So I created something at freshports.org. Boom! Started getting spam on the on the, these things that looked like addresses but weren't really addresses. So I think it. I think I changed it to invalid.freshports.org, which will never resolve to anything. Um, so hopefully that cut that down. But no, it it hasn't really. So back to here. The other class of data in this dump is email addresses and passwords. Ben Cow knows that these are used in an attempt to abuse the owner's SMTP server in order to deliver spam. I also believe that many of these may simply be aggregations from various other breach sources, and he goes on to talk about that later. So having an email address and a password gets you into an SMTP server sometimes. And if you can get into an SMTP server authenticated, you can send a lot of spam yeah. and that's what this crap is for. So, he says the first file is from the 14 sorry, the first extract he shows is from a 14 gigabyte file from the earlier one that he talked about. And in many cases he found the same data in both the larger file and the subsequent smaller file. Interestingly, as you can see from the suffix above, it's in a UK.txt file or a UK101.txt file and it has his email address because he finds that interesting because he's certainly not from the UK. No. And he has other files that refer to AU. But he's not in that file. And there are two other there are other there are no other two-letter country code represented in the file names. But clearly we're talking many millions of of email addresses here. A heap of them are from other locations. So take those suffixes with a grain of salt. I'm I'm guessing perhaps maybe UK.txt was a re- they got that file from someone in the UK and, and it has no relevance whatsoever to the contents. It's just the name of the file. Right. And so then there's another file which has uh an email address for a New South Wales government organization, mostly related to tolls. And then on the other on the right hand side of that that row, they have email addresses which are predominantly Australian addresses, but there's also thirteen thousand dot RU domains in there. So this email address on the left side is used to send notifications related to e tag devices. That's like an easy pass or toll collection um, uh, oh, uh, I device. See. Yeah. So you can pay the tolls. And he knows because he's gotten emails like that in the past. But he'll take a stab in the dar- stab at it and say there's not many legitimate drivers using the New South Wales toll rolled system with Russian email addresses. <laughs> no, probably so, not. How is how this is connected together? He's not sure. <clears> then <throat> then someone tweeted that he received a domain alert on this one, went through the process, and it turns out to be an invented sales at domain address. And I actually went through through the list for my domains as well. And I found sales at this domain, sales at that domain, sales at another domain, another domain. Those addresses have never been used. Really? But it's on, what was that site from? It was from B2B USA Business. Interesting. So someone's basically, uh, in mid-2017, a spam lift of over 105 million individuals in corporate America was discovered online. And it's just referred to as B2B USA Businesses. So... People are just making that up because those email addresses never existed. So, if you're ever thinking of getting a list of buying a list of spam, keep in mind that most of it's going to be fake. Yeah. Or consider that a lot of them may be fake. Now, now he goes further through it and he finds passwords. Basically, a password followed by a username, and it was basically one of these uh, files had 1.2 million rows. Now, a random selection of a dozen different email addresses from there confirmed that every single one of them was in the LinkedIn data breach. Oh. Now this is interesting because, because assuming that's the source, all of those passwords were exposed as SHA-1 hashes with no salt. So it's quite possibly that this is just a small sample of 164 million addresses that were in there and had readily crackable passwords.
0: Yeah, interesting. So, like that, that's just a the a subset there.
1: Hmm. Yes, yes. So, what? Following on from what I just read, which is what Troy wrote. If you have readily crackable passwords, there are hashes out there for them. If you have a difficult to crack ha- password, which is not easily found in a hash you're more secure so don't be typing in diamonds as your password use a password manager and use something random that your password password manager creates for you definitely that's
0: just one of the easiest ways to make sure that you know you mm-hmm. when these inevitable leaks happen you're at least a little bit protected you won't have other accounts that are vulnerable and it's really easy then to go generate a new password update everything done
1: mm-hmm. Now, another file with a similar naming structure contains 4.2 million email addresses and password pairs, this time with every single account having a hit on the massive exploit in combo list. This should give you an appreciation of how our data is redistributed over and over again once it's out there in the public domain. So this massive exploit in list, um, I'm not actually seeing when this came out, uh, May May 2017. So yet another file contains over 3000 records with email, password, SMTP server and port, say port 25 or port 587, mm -hmm. they're very common. This immediately illustrates the value of the data Thousands of valid SMTP accounts give the spammer a nice range of email servers to send their messages wow. from. Wow. There are many files like this, too. Another one contained 142,000 email addresses, passwords, servers, and ports. That's nuts. So I can't imagine that this was plucked from a provider because why would they have ports included? It must have been harvested from individuals.
0: Yeah, you would think so. Or, or scan somehow. I'm, yeah, I'm not sure. But it, it's certainly interesting. I can see why it would be very valuable if you you know have a bunch of email to send.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, now, we're getting down to the conclusion bit here. It goes on and on and on. Email addresses, passwords, and SMTP servers and ports spread across tens of gigabytes of files. It took HIPB 110 data breaches over a period of two and a half years to accumulate 711 million addresses. And here we go in one fell swoop with that many concentrated in a single location. It's a mind-boggling amount of data. And this is just a spammer sitting there. We don't, you know, is this a typical spammer? Is this an extreme example? Anyway. Those, those are my speculative uh, questions. The above examples are by no means exhaustive. Rather, they're intended to illustrate just how diverse the data, the data is. It o- helps explain both the massive number of records and the inevitable responses I'll get of there are addresses in there which aren't real. It also illustrates how broad the sources of data inevitably are. Finding yourself in this data set, unfortunately, doesn't give you much insight into where your email was obtained from, nor what you can do, what you can actually do about it. He has no idea how his service got mine, but even, but even for me, with all the data he's, I am seeing what I do. There is still a moment when I went, ah, this helps explains all the spam I got. That's the unfortunate reality for all of us. Our email addresses are a simple commodity that's shared and traded with reckless abandon used by unscrupulous parties to bombard us with everything from Viagra offers to promises of a Nigerian prince wealth. That, unfortunately, is life on the web today.
0: That is so true.
1: It's a different web we live in. It is. I remember when I used to get really upset by spam, and now, no, not anymore. Yeah, spam it's is still annoying. It's, it's still, still annoying.
0: annoying. Yeah, but that with privacy, with security risks, it's, mm-hmm. uh, you have to watch yourself and act, take active defense to make sure that you know you're you're not going to be taken advantage of or vulnerable. Well, I'm sure glad Troy Hunt's done this work because it's really interesting to get try to get an insight into what's going on here and how these you know how these operations are working.
1: I'll leave you with this one last sentence that that he's got, that that he had to say here. For this particular incident, if you're creating strong, unique passwords on each service, bracket, get a password manager if you don't already have one, close bracket, and using multi-step verification wherever possible, I wouldn't be at all worried. If you're not, now's a great time to start.
0: I don't think I could say that any better. So uh, we'll move right on to our final sponsor this evening, and that's our friends over at DigitalOcean. Maybe you're thinking about, you know, you don't want to use one of those big name uh, password managers. You want to set one up yourself because you're a tech TechSnap viewer, and that's what you do. DigitalOcean's a great place for that. You can spin up a VPS in 55 seconds, or hey, maybe even less than that. They're pretty snappy over there. And when you use our promo code SNAPOcean, all one word, lowercase, you'll get a 10 Dollar credit that makes it super simple to get started. So, DigitalOcean will let you seamlessly manage your infrastructure, you can deploy in seconds. They've got all SSDs, they were some of the first to be on all in on the SSD bandwagon, and it really shows it's very mature. They know what they're doing, they know the performance characteristics, and you just, disk speeds are crazy. Just go, go spin up a droplet, do a pseudo app get upgrade, you'll see what I'm talking about. Not only that, you'll see as well their incredible bandwidth. They've got 40 gigabyte E right to the hypervisors that also shows they've got great transit, great peering operations. So whether you need to, you know, set up a VPN for yourself at home or you just want to make sure your package downloads are really fast, DigitalOcean has got that covered. They've also got a great API. They, they really dog food it. They build their site on their API, their apps, and official libraries are built on it, and a whole bunch of community-supported apps and libraries are built on it, too. We use it here at the show. I use it in my own life. It makes it super simple to manage, update, deploy, snapshot, just whatever you need to do with your with your droplets. They've also got a bunch of premium cloud features you've come to expect from, you know, some of the other big-name cloud service providers, things like attachable block storage cloud firewalls so you don't have to fight with ip tables load balancing monitoring and a bunch more things like high cpu droplets and something i'm excited about they're working on object storage so look for that coming to a DigitalOcean data center near you sometime soon They've also got an incredible community. So not only will they provide you the actual, you know, infrastructure you need to build your next startup business or just personal project, they're also going to make sure that you have the resources to do it. So from anything like one-click apps, they've got a ton of those. So if you just want to deploy a new WordPress server, uh, own cloud instance, Nextcloud, those are all there. You can click one button, get that all set up, or... You want to roll it yourself. They've got incredible community-curated guides. They have real editors that take community contributions and turn those into some of the best documentation on the Internet. These days, you search for just about anything, you're probably going to find a DigitalOcean article about it. thats I think that just really says a lot about DigitalOcean, how they know, you know the community they're working with, they know their customer base, and they want to make it easy, simple, and fun for you. So don't waste any time, whether you want to just have somewhere to store some backups, you need a box so that you don't have to run cron jobs on a server at home, or you want to set up a new VPN, DigitalOcean is a perfect place to do it, and you can get started with promo code SNAPOcean. That'll get you a $10 credit, probably pay for your first two months, because prices start at just $5 a month. Yeah, that's right, you get a whole 512 MB of memory, one vCPU, that's no slouch, 20 gigs of all SSD disk, and one terabyte of transfer. So what are you waiting for? I don't think anything. DigitalOcean.com. Promo code SNAPOCEAN. That'll let them know you appreciate them sponsoring this TechSnap program. Thank you to DigitalOcean. And that brings us to today's feedback. Time where we look in the mailbag, see what's accumulated over the week, and get to hear from you, our wonderful audience. First up, we've got a letter from Brad. Hey, Wes and Dan. I wanted to point out something and ask a question. It sounds great. So first, in reference to Christopher Valerio's question on ZFS on his laptop in episode 322, I agree 100% with Dan. That's a common occurrence around here. I'm a Linux refugee, thanks to Systemd, who has been running PCBSD, now TrueOS, for almost three years. I will admit, Systemd drove me away from Linux, but it was native ZFS and boot environments that kept me there. I run TrueOS on both my laptop, a Lenovo T530, and my desktop, an old quad-core AMD. I have a single drive in my laptop so far, but on my desktop, the primary Zpool is on a pair of 256 gig SSDs. And I have a pair of one terabyte spinning drives for larger, bulkier things like jails, ports, and whatnot. Having said that, I've considered buying another 480 gig SSD for my laptop, but since I'm doing ZFS sends to my free NAS box, I've not felt the need to set up mirroring. The other thing is that I hope Dan misspoke regarding RAID-Z in, I believe it was episode 321. I thought I heard you say that you needed an odd number of drives for a RAID-Z2. I always thought it was an odd number for RAID-Z3, or RAID-Z, three drives or more, an even number, four or more, for a Z2 array, and five or more for Z3. Am I incorrect here? I always thought it was an even number of data drives plus the number of parity drives, and that the number of data drives should be even. Am I wrong here as well? I don't recall my friend has complaining about the drive selection for the four drives. Thanks, Brad. Hey, thank you, Brad. That's uh, some great feedback. I'm glad you're having uh, having a good time on TrueOS. The uh, boot environments are pretty slick, and nice to know it's working well on your Lenovo and your AMDs. So that's great to hear. What say you, Dan, about some of his other feedback?
1: If I said that, I should be punished. We'll take you out in the back shoot you. Yeah, it, it, it's wrong. Um, Google for something called "raidzy with enjoy worrying," or probably just "raidzy with worrying." What, what you'll find, Delfix here. Yep. What you'll find is a post by Matt Aarns, Matt which is pretty much considered to know a fair bit about ZFS. I should think so. It, given that Matt was involved with the original writing of it and is still involved with the development of it. So basically, to summarize, use RAID-Z, not too wide, enable compression. So basically, don't worry about it. If you're using an even number or an odd number, it doesn't really matter. That's the long and the short of it. For example, I have two 10-drive clusters, one of which is RAID-Z3 and one of which is RAID-Z2. I have another cluster, which is six drives of RAID Z2. Um, So some are even and some are odd. And it's not that big of a deal now that we have compression available. Because compression throws everything out. Before you had compression, it sort of made a difference. But it doesn't make any difference. Significant difference. It's not something to worry about. So have a read of that article. Um, Choose a RAID Z... The, the TLDR that I just came across. Choose a RAID-Z stripe based upon your IOPS needs and the amount of space you're willing to devote to parity information. If you need, need more IOPS, use further drives per stripe. If you need more usable space, use more drives per stripe. So that is if you're using a Z, yeah. Try to optimize your RAID-Z stripe width based on exact numbers is irrelevant in nearly all cases. I'll say that again. Trying to optimize your RAID Z stripe width based on exact numbers is is irrelevant in nearly all cases. So I'm not going to go into all the details, but have a read of this. Tell me what you think for the next show, and we'll follow up on this. But basically, don't worry about it. Don't worry about the width. Not too wide. Don't go 2400 drives. But generally, don't worry about it.
0: Nice, I like that. Good advice and a, a, a good article find there.
1: Okay, it, it is. Uh, what was the date on this? Uh, I don't see it, but it's been around for a while. This has been quoted more than yeah. I don't see date here either. But in uh, recent years,
0: excellent, a handy resource. Okay, so next up, we have got a letter from Thomas. Regarding Bacula, hey, a topic we haven't touched on for a little while here. Hello, guys. It's time to start planning our Bacula server upgrade. The current director is version 705 on FreeBSD 10.3. Is there a way to update to each version with package, PKG, or can I go straight to Bacula server v747? I'm reading on blog Bacula.org category releases to see what changes were made, etc. It looks like that's the release notes. Uh, Are the notes there good enough for the upgrade process, or is there anything else I should be aware of? I assume I need to buy some new Bacula FD binaries. And the director and storage daemon has to be the same version, I also assume. Does that go for the file daemons too, or can I get away without changing all file daemon installs? Also, did something change with Bacula V9 that means it will not become available for FreeBSD package install? Thanks, Thomas. Thank you, Thomas. All right, uh, Dan, you're definitely the Bacula expert here. I'm going to throw this
1: one right over to you. All right, we'll start with the last question. Stuff did change with version 9, but I've been holding off on developing the port, and it just went into the FreeBSD ports tree yesterday. So you asked your question before I had completed that work. So that makes that question move. You do have version 9 available. Um No, you don't need uh, new uh, file daemon binaries. The general rule is the SD, the storage daemon and the director both need to be on the same version. Always, always, always. Never have them on different versions. But they can be greater than or equal to the version of your file daemons. They go through a, a lot of effort to make sure that the servers are backward compatible with the clients. So I believe I still have clients running very old versions. You'll find out if you try to take advantage of some of the new features that are only in the newer clients. But oh, that makes sense. You'll find out right away. But if you well, don't need that, you'll be fine. If you if you don't start using the new features, if you just use the features that were available in the version you're running now, you will be fine. So provided you make awesome. no other changes to your configuration, just keep using the old binaries. Now, um, the upgrade process, yes. There is a file um, that you want to look at. Uh, it has the DDL upgrades that you need to run on the database. And sometimes it's just a matter of of updating one table just to say, hey, now we're in version X of the database. Oh,
0: that's nice. They provide that. That keeps it handy.
1: Yeah. So it is installed by the port. If you do package info uh, minus L and then the port name, it lists the files that are installed and you're looking for update or upgrade. I can't remember which it is. But that is also documented. But that the output of that file will tell you where to find it on disk. And it's under user local share bacula, I believe, from memory. But yeah, not 9.03 is in the tree now. Uh, I've been running it in a, in a test environment for, I think, a week or two. Oh, awesome. And it's running every night. And I just haven't got around to upgrading my own servers yet. Soon, That's great. I hope.
0: Thanks for doing that. That's wonderful. Okay, so thank you, Thomas, for writing in. Um, I'll be curious to see how your upgrade goes. Do let us know. Yes. So it also, a uh, last bit of feedback. It seems like we did not include the link uh, to the device you were talking about in episode 334. Here here we have it. Tell us a little bit more about it, maybe summarize if anyone's watching this episode and hasn't watched that one.
1: So I. I've talked about this three terabyte to five terabyte upgrade. And while I've been going through that, I've decided to erase all those hard drives and put them up for sale on eBay. And while I was doing that, I found a bunch of other old drives that have been sitting around, some of which are IDE, and I haven't used IDE in years. Uh, I found one motherboard with an IDE interface on it, but I found no, (laughs) this is fine. I found no IDE cables anywhere in my house, none whatsoever. I wow. tossed them all out because I, they've been sitting in a box for years. So um, I thought about buying a cable, but then buying this little adapter um, proved to be cheaper than buying the cable. And the adapter is, it is just something that, say, I can plug into the back of the laptop or, the, um, or the, the computer that's sitting on the table in the living room. And I can then plug in the hard drive to this unit. It shows up on my USB 3.0 connection and I can wipe it from there. Now, it's arrived, and I've powered up some drives, and they've showed up on the system, but I actually haven't tried accessing the drive or wiping it or anything like that. So I can't comment upon whether or not this unit works, but I will come back and let you know after I've done that. and That, that may be the, this week, but I'm not sure. It may be tonight. I really don't know. But you have to wait a couple of weeks to find out.
0: I'm willing to do that. I'm sure our audience is. Thank you for sharing. Uh, and thank you guys for sharing your feedback with us. If you want to send us more feedback, head on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com contact. There's our contact page. You can fill that form out. That sends us a letter. We'll put it up here on the show. Or you can go to techsnap.reddit.com. That's the subreddit. Or find us both on Twitter. Lots of ways to communicate. So we hope to see you in next week's feedback. And it's time for the roundup, the final segment in today's show. These are some stories that we didn't have time to put in the main segment, but they're still worth talking about. Lots of fun stuff, so let's jump right in. First up, over at TechCrunch, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but internet providers could easily snoop on your smart home. I don't like the sounds of that, Dan. Uh, how about you?
1: Yep, yep. Well, I do have some smart devices in my house, but I don't know how much this is going to help them. Uh, I know that if you can, you know, if you see a lot of traffic coming from Netflix, you're you're pretty well convinced that somebody's home. Uh, if you see a lot of traffic coming from, say, a video camera, maybe someone's looking at the video camera, or if you see a lot of traffic headed to, say, sleepnumber.com or their whatever website they actually use for um, tracking sleep data then chances are the person has just gone to sleep. So that's what they're getting at here. To quote, it's a pretty straightforward attack. The Internet of Things devices often identify themselves voluntarily, usually by connecting to specific domains or URLs. Even if they didn't, there are, there are simple ways of profiling them based on observation and some known data. The researchers demonstrated this by showing us the various devices show distinct patterns of data transmission. So they talk about um, the amount of traffic and the mean traffic and where it goes, and they can actually see that, okay, this is a sense sleep monitor, this is a Nest security camera, this is a Belkin, Uh, WEMO switch, or this is an Armcrest security camera, and so on. Now, it, it goes, you know, by watching a sleep tracker, the ISP can see when the user gets in bed and wakes up, perhaps even how well they sleep or whether they get up in the middle of the night and so on, because these devices phone home with the data. Yikes. Now, but don't worry. There's actually a pretty good solution, and I'm quoting here. They suggest a constant stream of around 40k per second should be more than an, enough to get rid of all the, this ability for them to monitor You know, this, this is basically is traffic shaping as it's called, and it doesn't prevent the devices from working. Uh, many of them work surprisingly well with artificially slowed connections, but it does make it hard for an attacker to tell signal from noise. Even if all they see is the volume, they don't know where it's going.
0: Oh yeah, see that makes a lot of sense, and that seems like a pretty useful, useful tactic. I wonder how, how we get this, you know, in an easy way into the hands of your average consumer. Uh, maybe it's just another IoT device you buy that just sits on the network making meaningless noise. Yeah,
1: yeah. I can see a market developing for that. All right. Well, we'll have to start that after the show.
0: Okay, so in that, in the spirit of that, so we can try to make some money here. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Let's move on, though. Uh, yes. The very dirty history of on-demand video technology. Yes. I promise we're not involved, though. No, not us. Yes.
1: that th- This is historical. This article is from earlier this month, but they talk about how in the early 70s, a very well-known hotel in New York City, um, it was the Hotel Commodore, The first experiments were done with custom video delivery at that time, so um, the motels were explicit about what separated them from a a generic family motor lodge. Uh, Advertisements encouraged patrons to rent rooms for a few days or a few hours, and guests could unwind in luxury and privacy, watching X-rated films in their own rooms rather than going to theaters, peep shows, or arcades. That said, a person spotted checking into an adult motel could no more argue their innocence than if they were spotted going into a peep show in an adult movie theater. So, people raided these hotels regularly, etc. So, that's where the hotel Commodore made headlines. This is a legitimate hotel for ordinary guests. Um, So, basically, they had all this technology. Uh, The players... System called the Movie Box uses playback units with cartridges containing 12 packs of 12 minutes each. Thus, movies of up to 2 hours and 24 minutes can be put on one cartridge. Uh, the Movie Box, with the desired cartridge already installed, was delivered by a bellman to a room upon request. Guests could play it via a projection system made by z Icon, I remember. Thus, representatives of the hotel stress would allow responsible hotel employees to make sure that no children saw whatever movie was out. It was custom content delivered to your door. So, it's not quite uh, what I thought it was going to be when I started reading it. But basically, they deliver the movie to your room. You play the movie in your room. So... The X-rated titles generally outsold the family fare, at least according to the hotel's general manager, and that's not remarkable. No, it's not. What was remarkable was that the hotel sold both. A family could watch, beware the blob in one room, while a businessman watched, blah, 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 blah. The only problem was space. If they showed The Godfather, half an hour of running time would have to be edited out in order for the movie to fit on the cartridge. Oh, yeah, that is a problem. So, anyway... I just found this interesting from a historical point of view of how they used to distribute this stuff and the technology that they used it for. They used for it, sorry. And they've got a great photograph here of the Sony U-Matic in all its analog glory. And that device was used in the early 70s to stream X-rated video to hotel rooms, which is different from what the Commodore did um, earlier on. Right.
0: Yeah, it seems like an interesting system, and it's 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 neat that there was demand for it. It's a little slice of history I had not heard of. Hmm. Exactly, right. a great roundup item. Okay, on to the next one. Maybe you, uh, as a text user, have heard of Docker. I'm sure you have. We've certainly talked about it as it's very popular these days. You might want to know about hardening Docker hosts with user namespaces.
1: Yeah, I can't comment on to whether or not. This is a good approach or not? I I know some people that are very active in the in the Docker area. Perhaps they can let me know. But basically, um, there's been a lot of controversy about Docker and and how it, it. You have to be very careful to make sure that one doesn't interfere with another. Um, if all you're deploying is one Docker application, I think it's not as challenging. But if you've got two Docker's running on the same machine, I'm not really sure how that works. Have you have you used this stuff before? Can you comment on the on
0: this area? Yeah, generally, generally that's uh you know if it should be fine. It, it, when it, it mostly becomes a problem if you're trying to do some kind of custom stuff with with name or if you have if you want to have user namespaces like separate, uh you know separate Docker containers that are separate in privileges and have separate you know user remappings for each one, you may have to be a little bit careful i think the tooling support is still being evolved for that so that it you know works well uh and works nicely and different distros or setups of it kind of have different different ways that it's done or different um you know different requirements some don't have username spaces enabled by default in the kernel for instance some do historically it's been it's a good and necessary feature i think for for more security so that you know so that we're a process to escape from the container. Uh, They won't have root on the host system, and that can go a long way to, you know, helping to increase container security and trust. Uh, But because the kernel is evolving its way to these features, you know, and it's not, it wasn't in there from the beginning, this has been one of the harder namespaces to get right in the kernel. So it has historically been um, a source of vulnerabilities. Uh, But these days it's looking pretty good, I think. We haven't seen a major one for a little while. Uh, And there's no, I think in a lot of cases, it can provide real security benefit. And this guide uh, talks about that, some of the pros, some of the cons, and things you might want to consider. Hmm. Yeah, it'll be interesting. It, it's one of the features, um, you know, by adding this on, uh, the containers come closer to what you're used to uh, with jails, you know, and, and having having Root isolated in the jail.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I'll, I'll be keen to see where this goes.
0: Yeah, definitely. Something we can try to pay attention to on further episodes of TechSnap. Okay, so on to the final bit of roundup today ZSH configuration from the ground up what was that you said?
1: ZSH oh I'm sorry I'm not familiar with that word
0: you're right isn't it ZSH but that's. I think that's harder to say for this one okay <laughs> maybe not
1: I have never used this shell I've never installed it I've never used it I think it comes pre-installed I'm not sure I'm not absolutely What positive. shell do you,
0: do you find yourself using?
1: Bash. Okay, yeah. And the only reason I used Bash is because I asked someone, hey, how can I get command line history here? I don't have any. Huh. Uh, and I'm not actually sure. Uh, there's a user local etsy shells file. Or is it? Or is it slash etsy shells? There's a file which tells you which shells are already installed. Yes, there is. Etsy shells, and no TCH is installed by default. Right. But yes. uh, zsh is not. Huh. I also have rbash and git shell, but no, I have not used this. A coworker uses it, and just skimming through this article, it sounds like you can do an incredible amount of uh, customization.
0: Yes, definitely. It's very powerful. It has lots of powerful features like globbing features. Some of them, uh, Bash has grown as well if you have a recent version of Bash. Uh, so you can look to that as well. Uh, but I think ZSH has a, a, more, a wider pro- proliferation of configs and other settings and it's a little bit easier and has some more advanced features. Uh, I I used to use it a fair amount. One nice thing about it is that it's a superset of Bash, so you can still run Mm -hmm. Bash scripts. Mm -hmm. A lot of the commands Mm -hmm. are the same, so if you'd use Bash on a large variety of systems, then it it works well for that. Um, A competing shell that I've also used is Fish, uh, which is the friendly interactive shell. Uh One of the differences there, uh, Fish also has a lot of of features that ZSH, ZSH has. But uh, generally, comes with a lot more. Uh, I don't know if they're sane or not, but the defaults are very friendly, so you don't have to configure a lot to get started with Fish. But it doesn't. It's not completely backwards compatible with Bash, so you will learn some differences that won't apply when you're on a Bash system. So, if you want some advanced features but still need to be Bash friendly, Zsh may be the way to go.
1: I've, I've never tried it. Um, I've also never done Bash scripting ever. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It's always been shell.
0: Mmm. Mmm. Yeah, well, I mean, if you need to run it on a variety of systems that may or may not have Bash, then that's pretty handy. In the, in the Linux world, I think Bash scripts get run a fair amount and they take advantage of some of the, you know, the niceties that come with that, like the, the arithmetic context or, uh, you know, double brackets for tests and those such things. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter.
1: No. Co- co- code it in whatever shell, shell you like. Um, I, I tend to use the born shell for for shell scripts just because that's the standard thing to yeah, do It's a very day.
0: good common denominator as well. You'll find it on a lot of systems, and it's pretty easy to use. Mm. Excellent. Well, hopefully this helps some people. I'm sure there are people that are interested. If you have a shell that we didn't mention here, or you just want to tell us about you know the shells of your choice, Please write in and let us know. That's going to do it for today's Tech Snap. Thank you very much for joining us. You want to find more? Go to jupiterbroadcasting.com. There you'll find the archive of our show, past episodes, past hosts, and a whole bunch of other great Jupiter Broadcasting content things like Coder Radio, BSD Now, Unfilter, and User Error, the Ever Popular. Plus, you can find the calendar that'll tell you when we're here live and the live stream itself, the IRC chat room, and the contact page. That's the important one right there. There you can send us letters. We'll put it here in the feedback segment. We'll get to have a nice dialogue going back and forth. One of my favorite parts of doing this show is connecting with you guys out there in the audience. If you want to do that in other ways, there's techsnap.reddit.com, or we're both on Twitter. I'm at Wes Payne. He's at TechSnap underscore Dan. Anything you want to say before we get out of here, Mr. Dan?
1: Tell us what your favorite shell is and why is it the one true shell?
0: Exactly. A challenge for you. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.